0: and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping stuff as we usually cover during the beginning of each episode. We had a great response, a really great response, actually, to our four-part series on the FBI corruption in Boston, generational corruption as it stands. What a lot of people don't understand is that episode with H. Paul Rico, Joe Salvati, and all those guys, that started in 1965. And we come all the way up. I know I didn't take you up through the Mark Rossetti case, Rossetti goes up until current times, you know. I think the last time I heard mention of Mark Rossetti and his 20-year-long occupation, basically, as a top echelon informant with the FBI. And what had dawned on me when I was doing this research is Mark Rossetti's case and Whitey Bulger, Stevie Flemmy, and John Conley's case overlapped. So, They promised to fix their confidential informant system, but never really did because Mark Rossetti was still on the street ratting out his friends and enemies, just like Whitey Bulger did. And there is strong suspicions that Mark Rossetti during his time as an FBI informant committed murder or may have committed murder. What the hell's going on? What the FBI does and the government in general does is they just know that most people are going to go on with their lives because they've got bills to pay. They've got to get braces for their kids. They've got to run to little league basketball, soccer practice. They don't have time. To focus on your generational corruption. So their attention is elsewhere. So they just continue with this nefarious horseshit, right? They lie to our state police. They lie to our local police. And they put you in danger. They just do. So the two questions I posed during the last episode was, can the FBI continue? And do you trust the FBI? Give me a shout at barry at bostonconfidential.net and answer those questions for me. I want to know what people think because my opinion is the FBI cannot be trusted. I don't know how they're taken seriously in a court of law. Like, what does a judge say? It's federal court. Obviously, turns to an FBI agent knowing what the hell happens at that bureau. But can they continue and do you trust the FBI? I think they need a hell of a lot more oversight. I think they need an independent board to oversee the confidential informant system, something outside the FBI itself, because this is just complete and utter horseshit, really, right? It never stops. And guys, I'm no Pollyanna. I know you need bad guys to inform on other bad guys, on worse people. I get it. I understand it. I've said before on this podcast, John Matarano, I think he did 20 murders, was convicted of 20 murders. You need him to testify against Whitey Bulger, who committed 55 murders, say, right? You'd need that, I get it. But man, it is so distasteful. It needs another look. All right, guys, so I think I'm going to include the FBI... And the Mark Rossetti case in one or two more podcasts, because i'm just going over some research here, and it's not just the amount of out and out corruption but ineptitude, right? The Parkland shooting in Florida at the high school, somebody had called the FBI and told him the shooter was a raging nut case with videos of him with guns up, his rantings that he was going to kill people. And I think he said in his videos that he was going to shoot people at the high school. They forward that to the FBI and the FBI does nothing with it. Does that sound familiar? Because the Sampson case in Abington, Massachusetts, right? Sampson, the serial killer, calls and tells the FBI, hey, I'm in Abington. Can you come pick me up? and they'd never do anything with it. Then the FBI lies about that phone call for years. After Sampson made those phone calls, he went on to kill three people. All right, guys, I'm sorry. That's my rant on the FBI. It just gets to me. I'm a patriot. We need the FBI. We need their services. The local police need it. Man, it's just so disheartening. All right, Well, I have you here, let's get back to a real done it, guys, and it's an old one. This is the case of Melanie Melanson out of Woburn, Massachusetts. Grab your hats. We have to jump back into the way back machine today. We have to head back to 1989 to Woburn, Massachusetts, specifically October 27th, 1989. But we're going to start just a little bit earlier than that. And I want to let you guys know that there's nothing wrong with my voice. I'm just suffering some severe allergies the past few days, my God. But I guess that comes with the warmer weather. So let's get on to it. Melanie Melanson was age 14 in 1989, and she lived in Woburn, Massachusetts. Woburn is a town located north of Boston, northeast really, and it has an industrial history, and it did in 1989. Now it's probably... Man, it's a bustling suburb, but back then there was much less development and there was kind of some heavy industry there. If you remember the movie with John Travolta called A Civil Action, the book is much better by the way, but part of that was focused on these tanneries in Woburn and there was a lot of them at the time and they were dumping toxic waste in the river and into the ground. It actually ended up killing people. And A Civil Action, starring John Travolta, is the movie version of that. It was a years-long battle by this attorney. It's a very famous case. Actually, in law schools, the book, A Civil Action, is mandatory reading for first-year students. So at that time, there were a lot of tanneries. There were a lot of other businesses as well. And this is 1989. It's kind of before the technology bubble kind of bubbled up on that section of Boston. Woburn is located right in the technology belt, right next to Burlington, and it borders Stoneham, Winchester, and Reading, I believe, on the far north side. Woburn actually got kind of a bad rap in that movie. Everybody thought it was all toxic waste. It wasn't. That was limited to probably two or three acres but it was heavily polluted the rest of the town is absolutely beautiful and since that time i mean that place Woburn has exploded reading because everybody works in the technology belt so they're looking to live nearby and those communities including Woburn, have really developed pretty nicely there's a lot more business in the area hotels, restaurants now than there was in 1989. It was kind of, I don't want to call it a backwater in 1989, but a little bit, a little bit of a backwater. But it's always been a physically beautiful town, and it's surrounded by similar towns as well. So that's, in a nutshell, Woburn, Massachusetts. But let me just tell you, the price tags for homes in Woburn today you can't really touch it. I, I bet you probably couldn't get a house there now for under 650000 700000 just for the proximity to Route 128, which encapsulates that technology belt, really. So in 1989, Melanie was 14 years old. She was a freshman at the local high school, and things were going pretty well, but Melanie didn't always have it so good. Her parents have been reported to have pretty substantial substance abuse problems. The main substance, I believed, was alcohol exacerbated by drug use. And they'd fight, and sometimes it would get violent, and they'd do this in front of Melanie. And it was a real horror show. Melanie ends up coming to Woburn to live with her grandmother. But there was also a lot of extended family in the area, and they made the best of the situation. Quite frankly, it seemed to be pretty good once Melanie got to grandmom's house. There were aunts, cousins all around, so she was pretty happy. During the bad days, though, Melanie had run away before, and I don't know the story in its totality. But they said she ran away to Florida or something like this, or tried to run away to Florida. And that would play a part in this later as we go. But at that point in her life, Melanie was really looking forward to teenagehood, I guess, and coming adulthood, I'm sure. But she was a freshman, and on that night, the night of August 27th, 1989, she got invited to a party. Her and a girlfriend, this party was to be held outdoors as a lot of teenage parties are. And it was said that Melanie was the youngest person there at age 14 for a late night drinking party in the woods. Man, she's pretty young for that. But you know how it is when you're a teenager. And I do think it was a little bit different just before the 90s began in 89. But this location is very remote. It was an industrial area on Henshaw Street in Woburn. And it's off Washington Street, which is the main drag in town. And it was kind of at the corner of the borders of Winchester, Stoneham, and Woburn. Now, this was a common place for kids to gather and drink. And every city and town in America and probably the world has the same type of setup where kids go They'll bring an old couch, whatever it takes to have a little privacy, have some drinks away from the adults. But at that age, high school age, I mean, she's a freshman, things go wrong, and something went wrong here. So I'm going to interrupt a little bit here and say the reporting on this case in the mainstream media is absolutely horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. You really have to dig to get the names of those kids that were at that party. There's several TV episodes or segments on this case where they never mention the people's names who were with her, and I think that's a big mistake. I think that's one of the reasons that this missing persons case has never been solved. All right, I'm gonna come back to that, but the reporting in this case was horrible. All right. So physically, Melanie Melanson was a very pretty girl. She was about five foot three and she's listed at about 105 pounds. But I see pictures of her. That seems to be quite generous. I'd be surprised if she went over 100 pounds at any rate. She's just a tiny little thing. Pretty girl. And seemingly, just like a lot of us, maybe all of us at that age, looking to fit in, make friends, and it's high school, and she's looking forward to it. So she went to this party, and again, the reporting on this case is so horrible. I believe she went to this party with a friend of hers, Carmen Gonzalez. And she was very good friends with Carmen. And at a certain point, all these kids... And it seems to be about 12 to 15 kids go to this party. Carmen and Melanie were invited at school that day. And Carmen and Melanie leave school early. I don't know if they, you know, played hooky, jumped out. We used to call it cutting out. But they left school that day early. And Melanie ends up going home and telling her grandmother that she's going to be staying with another friend. And this friend was originally slated to go to the party with Carmen and Melanie, but did not because she had a strict curfew. But she said Melanie could come back to her house after the party and she was going to throw pebbles against the window. The other kid would wake up and let her in. Shitty plan, right? But that's teenage logic at that point, right? Kids simply don't believe it, never even dawns on them that anything bad could happen. I could name five things that would go wrong with that plan just off the top of my head as an adult. But at 14, you want to go to that party, and that's all you see. And that's what these kids did. So Melanie fibs to her parents, says, I'm going to one friend's house, and goes to this late night party. Again, what the reporting in this case is so crappy. I don't know when anybody got to this party. I know apparently when they left, it seems to be in the early morning hours, but when it was still dark out. So, man, just for these facts, these little facts, you really have to dig in this case. There's not one repository of information of case facts on this, and that may be a police issue because they should put this all together in a timeline. But that kind of goes back to my rantings on cold cases and how they're handled. And this is an example of it, guys. All right, so let's get to the party. So it's Friday, October 27th, 1989. And Melanie and her friend Carmen Gonzalez are gonna go to this party in the woods right off of Washington Street, Henshaw Street, I believe, in an industrial area. And I've read a few reports that at least a large courier business was there and a few other warehouse-type businesses. And that was that industrial park, that industrial area. And the kids walked down a path. And I think it was pretty far into the woods. The pictures I've seen of where the kids party is very remote. And there's some ponds in the area. But honestly, to call them ponds is giving them a lot of credit they kind of just big, nasty puddles, it looks like to me. It appears that Carmen and Melanie were the only two girls present at this party, which is kind of weird. And everybody at the party was said to be older. And Melanie was 14, just about ready to turn 15. And I'm assuming Carmen Gonzalez is about the same age. They were both freshmen, I think, at the high school. Different reports say 12 people were present, maybe some more, 12, 15 people, and people came and went from this area. It was a pretty well-known area among the high school kids. Melanie felt privileged to be there, and it's kind of a grown-up thing. These guys are probably juniors and seniors at the high school. The weird thing about this, though, is there's only two girls there, and they're about 14 or 15 years old, and that's a big Age difference if you're talking juniors and seniors. I mean, you could be 17, 18 at that point, and those girls have barely hit puberty. There's definitely a dynamic situation that's off there. There's certainly a power imbalance, and I'm starting to wonder if that was intentional. So, one of the problems for me in this case, where I don't know what time the party started, like what time did people start drinking? What time did Melanie Melanson? start to hit the booze. Because at age 14, let's face it, all of us were alcohol, lightweights, you can't drink what you can drink as an adult. Two beers and she could be in the hospital, two, three beers, and she could be in an ambulance ride. So if this party goes on for, I don't know, four or five hours, because I think as this thing ends, I've read that the timing was about 2 a.m., So you could be there for hours boozing it up, and let's face it, we've all done that as high schoolers, but she's very young, and those kids are getting ready to go off to college, I think. I think there was definitely that power imbalance there. So nothing out of the ordinary seems to happen at this party. I'm assuming there's music. There's got to be some lights, because what I was wondering, man, it's got to be pitch black. It's October in New England, and You know, after 11 p.m., it's pitch black. And being in the suburbs, I found when I first moved out here that there's a different type of dark when you live in the suburbs versus when you live in the city. Sometimes out here in the suburbs, I feel like I've fallen off the end of the earth. It's so dark. I don't know what the lighting situation was there. I don't know if these kids had the brains enough to hook up a light. I'm sure there was a radio Stuff like that. And obviously, booze and whatever else you're doing, but that's a long time to be out in the woods boozing it up. I don't know what happens here because it doesn't appear that all of the partygoers' names have been released to the public. But we know at least two names, and so that accounts for about four people. Let me tell you about that. I know that sounds a little weird. There's two people that we know were there. One was Eugene Bertini. And he was one of the older kids. The other one was Jimmy Tresca. And these guys were best friends. I don't know how much older they were than Melanie, if they were, you know, juniors or seniors or what. But these two had girlfriends. Gene, his name is Eugene, but they called him Gene Bertini and Jimmy Tresca. They both had girlfriends, but. What people really didn't know at the time, and I didn't know this before I did some more in-depth research on this, that one of these guys, Gene Bertini, was dating, actually dating Melanie Melanson. She had written in her diary, and I had seen this in the news reports, about somebody she was in love with, teenage romance, that type of thing. So I don't know how much years separated Bertini and Melanie. But the story goes as such. And I'm going to tell you this I've pieced it together from about four or five different sites. And this seems to be the general theory. The kids are at the party and it's getting late. People were coming and going all night. But Melanie was seeing Gene Bertini and she wanted to spend some time with him. And everybody else seems to have left. So I believe that left just Gene and Jimmy alone with Melanie. I believe Cameron Gonzalez had to go home earlier than Melanie, but Melanie was intent on spending some time with this kid, Gene. And that's the basic story as how the party goes. I know it sounds like a teenage soap opera, and I guess it is. I guess teenage life is like that. But it seemed to be that Melanie was hanging back to try to meet up with Gene at a certain point. I would have to assume, as this story goes, that Gene and Jimmy's girlfriends had already departed, and as the night wound down, it was just Melanie, Jimmy, and Jean. and at that point, the story seemed to diverge a bit. Jimmy Tresca says at that point, he had asked Melanie if she wanted a ride home. She declined, again, to spend time with Gene. So she says, no, I'm going to stay. And Jimmy supposedly simply drives home himself or I heard an alternate story. He drove another person home. So at this point, Gene Bertini and Melanie Melanson were the only two left at the party and they began to walk out of the woods together and they get to the clearing and Gene has a motorcycle. But he says he couldn't give her a ride because he only had one helmet, guys. It's 2 a.m. You've just been drinking with a 14-year-old girl and you're worried about a helmet. So he says at that point, he drove off and she walked back towards her residence or something like that, towards Montville Ave. And later on, the family would dispute that because she was staying at the friend's house and would have went in a different direction. So that froze Bertini's story, a lot of question marks there, right? So in terms of motive here, and I do believe this was a homicide, so I'm going to call it that, I believe Gene had motivation. He's there with his girlfriend. I don't know how deeply I got into it before. They had been dating on the side. Gene was dating a girl by the name of Missy, and Jimmy had a girlfriend, and they were there as well, Jennifer. I'm not going to give you the last names on those two, only because I've gotten this from a few different sources, and I don't know if each of them are accurate or not. So I'm just going to identify those people by their first names. So Missy goes with Gene, and Jennifer goes with Jimmy, and they're this foursome. So at a certain point, Gene and Melanie are the only two left there. What happens from there, nobody knows, because Melanie Melanson was never seen alive again. According to Gene, he waves her off as he's driving off on his motorcycle at 2 a.m., guys. And he doesn't want to give her a ride on back because he doesn't have another helmet. I got to tell you, that's probably the worst story I've ever heard. But did he do it? I don't know. There's question marks all around this case. Also, as far as Jimmy Tresca goes, just after this all happened, after they began looking for Melanie, suddenly it is reported, and I've seen this in several locations as well, that his car may have gotten stolen, quotations. So it disappears. And I guess there was some rumor that Jimmy had been seen with a dirty shovel after that. And I don't know the parameters of that, so I don't know how much weight to give it. But if his car did turn up stolen after that, that is a hell of a coincidence, right? So I think the girlfriends, Missy and Jennifer, had to have left that party earlier. Maybe they had curfews as well. But again, Melanie and Gene appear to be the last two together. He drives off on the motorcycle. So... I don't know, but the next day, Melanie is nowhere to be found. And after a while, her grandmother begins calling for her because she's supposed to be staying over at a friend's house. And then she ends up going over the friend's house and asking, hey, where's Melanie? And she says, well, she never came. And this goes round and round for a while. And eventually people start to spill about the party. And now she goes to the police, the grandmother goes to the police. and. Melanie had run away before. If you remember at the beginning of the podcast, I had said she had a bit of a troubled upbringing with mom and dad having alcohol problems. And she had split at one point. And the cops initially attributed that to that mindset, running away. And I don't think that was the case. And I think they got off that pretty quickly, though. And they began an area search of that area behind the courier company off of Washington Street at Henshaw Street. So the search begins, but they don't find Melanie, and people are starting to get worried. I think the cops totally lose it. And they start to interview all the people at the party. Obviously, that's the first step. And I believe everybody else cooperates except for the girlfriends, Missy and Jennifer. And their names are out there if you want to look for, it. and maybe I'll post it in the show notes. But they refused to give a statement, guys. And they still have. This was 1989. They still haven't talked about what happened that night with the police. Can you imagine that? But I think the way the investigation goes is they get a pretty good timeline from the kids, you know, who was the first to leave, and then you can winnow it down. And they did that. Again, I believe they got all the way down to Bertini and Melanie alone together. If. Jimmy Tresca really did go off and drive the remaining kids home. He has a bit of an alibi, at least for the homicide. I'm going to call it a homicide, right? But Gene's story seems completely ridiculous to me that he is leaving and he's leaving Melanie alone in the woods, totally alone in the woods. And I believe she had like a half mile to go through the woods, the way she was headed. So I just don't buy that. And don't forget Gene and Melanie were a couple. They were into each other, you know, and you know how that goes when you're a teenager. And so now you're just going to drive off and leave basically one of your girlfriends anyways in the woods by herself to walk home. And it's got to be completely dark. And she's going to walk through the woods. All of this going through the woods at that age to me seems a little sketchy to begin with. I don't know if I could have done it. I was a city kid, you know. So Jimmy Tresca and Gene, they do talk to the police. They do give a statement, but they kind of put it on each other. From what I can gather, their stories say the last person, they pointed their finger at each other. Gene says that Jimmy was the last person along with him, and Jimmy says Gene was. Man, highly suspicious. And as these stories go, they kind of build. And Jimmy Tresca's father soon Became involved at least in these rumors. And Jimmy Tresca's father was a Woburn police officer by the name of, the last name was Rodriguez, Officer Tony Rodriguez. And I guess that was Jimmy's stepfather. So rumors start to go. And you know how they build whenever the police are even remotely, tangentially connected to a case, it's a cover up. I don't buy that. But something certainly went wrong here, right? One of the strange things about the following morning, Jimmy Tresca's girlfriend was with him at his residence the following day. And then Jimmy's car turns up stolen. And there were rumors of Tresca being seen with a dirty shovel, either at the location or at his house. But sources differ on that, guys. And the motivation people give to this was that Gene and Melanie were openly cheating, and his girlfriend knew it, apparently. And it was hard not to because they just weren't trying to hide their affair, right? So there's a lot of question marks in this case, a lot of question marks. So would that be motivation enough to kill someone, right? But maybe you get into a street beef in the woods, somebody falls down and hits their head. And there's always that sexual motivation when there's a man and a woman involved, right? So... Could somebody have said, I want to go further in our sexual relationship, and somebody's too young for that? I don't know, guys, but man, something went wrong in those woods, and Melanie didn't come out. One of the most constant speculation is that Gene had done something to her in the woods, and then somehow got Jimmy involved, because now his car goes missing so there would be evidence in the car if they transported an injured or dead Melanie right so that would kind of fit with the car going missing or stolen afterwards and this is where the people who are lined up in speculation point to officer gonzalez jimmy's stepdad because who would know that who would know that about a body Who would know that you had to get rid of the vehicle that was housing a body, right? A police officer. So this is all just loose speculation, and I don't think a lot of it comes from the police. The police haven't released much information, and I'm not even sure they released the names of the attendees at the party. A lot of the information I got was from local media sources, not the larger newspapers or television news accounts. That's why I kept saying that the coverage of this case is absolutely lousy. Because you want to know why? Since 1989, I've been aware of this case. I never heard the words Gene Bertini and Jimmy Tresca. I just haven't. I had no idea there were viable suspects in this case, and maybe four of them, right? So if I don't know it, and I'm living in the area... I think it's safe to assume that others have received this media the same way. They're totally unaware that there's viable suspects in this case. So the one thing that stands out in this case to me are those people at the party know what happened, specifically the four boyfriend-girlfriend kids, right? Jimmy Tresca's girlfriend was Jennifer, and Jean's girlfriend was Missy. Jimmy and Jean have talked to the police. The girlfriends have not. I find that highly irregular, and especially as you come into adulthood. This happened in 89. That's somebody's 14-year-old daughter. What happens when you come up with a 14-year-old daughter in this case, right? The police have been getting tips in this case. The case went dead cold just after it happened, but all through this, they've had a caller coming to tell them search in this area, search in that area, and they have, and they've had decomposition dogs all through that area near the pond and everything else more than once, and the dogs do hit on an odor of decomposition, which is strange, but Jerry Leone, the Middlesex County District Attorney, went on to say that And this was relatively recently. I mean, it was, you know, in the 2000s, I think the 2010s. Leone says, We believe that Melanie met with foul play and never came out of those woods alive. And he went on to say, and this was surprising, that her body may have been moved more than once. And I think that prompts more speculation pointed towards the Tresca family, right? Because who would know how to move a body? and the urgency and the need to move a body, except the retired policeman, right? So that's where the speculation lies. I don't know if any of that's concrete. You don't know what the police have in this case, if they were ever close to indictments on it, but it did go dead cold. And there were moments of hope with these decomposition dogs and the gentleman that founded the body farm for the FBI came out there with some new technology. And it did indicate that there was decomposition present in those woods, but no body was ever found. As recently as July 28th, 2012, cadaver dogs were back out there. So they have a person calling into the police department. I don't know if it's a man or woman or if it's the same person. The police haven't indicated that. If it's a woman, maybe it's one of those girlfriends, right? And she's trying to sort this all out. Somebody's trying to help. They're either trying to help the police or mislead the police. But the presence of decomposition in those woods leads me to believe that they're trying to help the police. So an item of interest in this case occurred in April 2011. Gene Bertini and his wife were arrested for an armed robbery of a gas station. And it was actually pretty brutal. Gene is alleged, and I I don't know if this case, if he ever got a conviction and served jail time on it, but he was involved in an armed robbery. He was arrested for it. Gene goes into the gas station with a gun, pistol whips the teenage proprietor, the cashier, whatever, gets him down on the ground. Guy thinks he's gonna be killed. The guy's cousin or friend was there. He sticks the gun in his ribs, robs the place of about 300 bucks, and runs out to an awaiting car driven by his wife. Shortly thereafter, the police unravel this pretty quickly, and they get a hold of Gene Bertini on the cell phone. Or Bertini actually calls them after they visit his home address. And he says he calls the police on his cell phone. Says, Jesus, I'm up in New Hampshire. That's going to be some time before I'm able to talk to you. So, as the cops are talking to him, they're pinging his phone. And it was pinging a location in Massachusetts at a motel. Naturally, they go to the motel, they raid the motel, and they find the clothes that were used in the robbery and all kinds of stuff, a necklace that was taken, and they make the arrest. So, this crime screams to me of drug abuse. They're drug abusers, alcohol abusers. They needed that money immediately for a fix. They stole the 300, probably went and bought dope. That's how this goes, right? We all know that. But the strange thing in this case is Gene Bertini and his wife to a lesser extent ferociously fought being tested for DNA. He didn't want his DNA in the system. Why do you think that is, guys? And he fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. A judge, a lower circuit judge, said, yes, you have to do that. And if the police have to use force to get a DNA swab from you, they are entitled to do so. And that goes all the way to the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And they held up the lower court. So Bertini, I believe, and correct me if anybody knows any different, I believe Bertini was required to submit his DNA into the system, and that's probably a big win for the Commonwealth. I don't know what's happened to this guy since then. I haven't heard much. If he's doing armed robberies for dope, he doesn't have a long lifespan, right? And I haven't heard much about Jimmy Tresca in the intervening years. And the girlfriends, I don't know what their deal is, man. And those other kids at the party, the police seem to think they know more than they're saying. And I think that's the case. I believe there's four suspects in this case. And I don't know why the police haven't named them, right? They're at a party where somebody goes missing. And that makes you a person of interest in this case. So name them. Put some pressure on them. Somebody was trying to help you. Figure out who that was and go to them. But man, this is a crazy case. And I didn't know half of this before I did some in-depth research on it. I don't know how people have knowledge of a murder. You know, when you're a teenager, right? That's one thing. You don't want to rat on your friends and all this. But as you come into adulthood, oh my God, doesn't that weigh on you? I think you're seeing the results of something weighing on Mr. Bertini, right? That's the lifestyle he now lives is insanity, right? And I think what happened in 89 may be weighing on that guy. And those women who were girlfriends of theirs, you got to be kidding me. You've got to have your own kids by now. That could happen to your 14-year-old kid. Any day of the week, it could. And you just don't help? Man, it's heartless. So there's a lot of speculation in this case. And I think the police could narrow this case down a little bit. And they'd be right in doing so. Because, man, how long has it been? It's coming up on 34 years, guys. I mean, what real risk is there? This one's going in the books as an unsolved unless you get on it pretty quickly. And I know the Woburn PD and the Mass State Police are working this case. But, man, again, it falls into that trap of this cold case protocols. Is it working? Here's the evidence it isn't. All right, guys, I think that's about all I have for you in this one. I wish there was more. It seems at times they were getting close to making an arrest on this. They seemed close to getting a body recovery. Man, it just kind of slips through your finger like sand, right? I pray there are better days ahead for this investigation. But I'm going to leave you there and get on to the next one for you. All right, guys, I'm going to see you on the flip side.